I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to a special episode of We Made People. Occasionally, we will drop bonus episodes. Bonus episodes come from things like sermon series that I'm doing at my church, or Q&As that Emily and I do on Twitter Spaces. The main focus of season one of We Made People is framed around each of the kids God has blessed us with. Bonus episodes don't tell that story, but they do expand on many of the ideas that come up in each of those episodes. For example, what I'm sharing with you this week is four sermons that I've preached at East River Church that cover topics related to family, parenting, and children. I think these episodes will be helpful as you consider building your first-generation Christian household. And so, this morning, our text is a single verse. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. So turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that uh, it's both stirring, encouraging, um, convicting and empowering. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us men to be the heads of our household, not just in word, but in deed, not just in instruction, but in example. And we pray that you would help us to raise up children who love you from their heart. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the work of fatherhood. Next week, we'll look at the labor of motherhood. And, uh, and although we may think of fatherhood as a metaphor we apply to God, Scripture has things the other way around. Listen to Ephesians three fourteen through 15. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the Greek word for father here is patera, and the word for family is patria. And this is um, why, or patria, this is why the SV translation uh, notes that the verse can also be read, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. I prefer this uh, reading because it brings an important truth into a sharper focus. Earthly fathers represent the heavenly father to the world, especially the members of their own household. In a sermon, J.W. Alexander, he preached, there is no member of a household whose individual piety is of such importance to all the rest as the father or the head. There is no one whose soul is so directly influenced by the exercise of domestic worship. Where the head of of a family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill throughout the entire house. So fathers are like thermostats. They have a unique ability to set the spiritual temperature in their families. C.S. Lewis the author of Chronicles of Narnia, he was deeply influenced by a Scottish author, uh, George MacDonald. And MacDonald is regarded by most to be the the founding father of modern fantasy writing. He mentored uh, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. And the author of The Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien, cites him as a major influence, and so do a bunch of other people. Here's what uh, uh, Chesterton said of MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. He said, it was a book that had made a difference to my whole existence. That's where he learned that even commonplace things like stairs and doors can be magical. And here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about George MacDonald. And Lewis credits MacDonald as being one of the chief influences that led him to become a Christian. 
And he said, an almost perfect relationship with his father was the earthly root of all McDonald's wisdom. From his own father, he said, he first learned that fatherhood must be at the core of the universe. He was thus prepared in an unusual way to teach that religion in which the relation of the father and son is of all relations the most central. This is the power of fatherhood. The presence of a benevolent, godly father is one of the greatest gifts that can ever be given to a child. A godly father is a sermon that preaches the truth about God the Father day in and day out. In this way, a near and dear relationship with a godly father prepares children for the glorious truth of the gospel. Namely, children of the devil can become children of God through, or children of God the Father through the blood of God the Son. Conversely, the absence of a godly father is a pain that is often felt through all of life. There's a unique hunger in the soul of the fatherless. And fatherlessness can take two forms. Uh, there is the absent father, as in he is not physically present in the home or life of his children. And this may be because he died or uh, because he left of his own choosing. Sometimes the child is ripped from the father's influence through unjust divorce and family law court rulings. Either way, he's not there. He is represented by an empty chair around the dinner table. Instead of a sweet sermon, his absence is a chilling silence. It can make someone question the reality of a loving fatherhood, uh, including the fatherhood of God. But a father can be physically present and mentally checked out. There's such thing as an abdicating father. Listen to some of the synonyms for abdicate. Uh, resign, surrender, vacate. Stand down, step down, or bow out. An abdicating father is there, but he's not really there. He is distracted and disengaged. His chair at the dinner table may not be empty. He may be sitting in it, but there's still a chilling silence uh, all the same. Which brings us back to our text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the work of fatherhood. This is your calling, brothers. This is what your families uh, need more than anything. It's a high calling. It's a position of great power. As Lewis said, fatherhood is at the core of the world. This is why I believe as the father goes, so goes the household. As the household goes, so goes society. I believe the great need of our day uh, is godly, present fathers. If there is a revival of fatherhood, there will be a reformation in our society. That's where it starts. And that's why one of the chief goals of the elders of East River Church is to encourage and support you men in this labor. If our fathers are strong, our homes will be strong. Churches with strong homes don't have to create all sorts of programs. Dad is already disciplining and discipling his children. Generally speaking, God blesses that sort of effort with the result of godly, obedient children and cheerful, happy wives. A lot of the time, not all the time, church programs are an attempt to address the needs of a weak home. And while they can be helpful supplements, they are poor substitutes. Dads aren't easily replaced. Of this verse, A.W. Pink, he says, it's to be noted that the fathers are here specifically addressed, and this for two reasons. One, because they are the heads of their families and their government is especially committed to them. And two, because they are prone to transfer this duty to their wives. This duty falls to us men. It's not the responsibility of the church or the state to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That responsibility 
falls chiefly on us. Yes, your wife plays an essential role in raising your children. Mothers have their own special power and influence. Yes, the church is here to help you in this labor. But you cannot transfer this duty onto your wife or anyone else by uh, being absent or abdication. You are the one who must lead the way in your family. Now, how? How do we lead the way? Well, our text gives us a don't and a do. And first, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Or as several other translations render it, fathers, do not exasperate your children. The Greek word for exasperate means to rouse someone to anger, to provoke in a way that really pushes someone's buttons. The old Webster's defines it as to anger, to irritate to a high degree, to provoke, to rage. Now, fathers and all men, we all know this. Like, we, we like to tease our kids. And like dad jokes are just annoying. And that's why we keep doing them, right? We're not going to stop. Uh, but that, there's a difference between innocent teasing and uh, what's being described here. This is to highly irritate. This is to provoke, to rage. In Colossians 3, 21, we find the same command, but it has a rationale attached to it. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The NIV translates the verse as fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. There is a sort of exasperating fatherhood that will fill children with rage and bitterness. Sometimes it's right on the surface. You see it in a wild child given to angry fits. You see it in a defiant child who disobeys authority and is rude to adults and unkind to others. Sometimes it resides under the surface. You see it in depressive, repressed children. You see it in children who are weighed down with fears and compulsions. It takes many forms, but all of them are a manifestation of discouragement. John Calvin, he writes, kind and liberal treatment has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase that cheerfulness and activity of their obedience, while a harsh and unkind manner rouses them to be obstinate and destroys the natural affections. It is natural for your children to love you. Kids, it's amazing how your children just look up to you, right? You know all your problems. Like a big part of your 20s for a lot of people are figuring out that mom and dad weren't perfect, right? And um, But your kids naturally love you and they naturally desire your approval. And if you deny it over and over again, you will embitter them and you will lose their hearts. So don't be that sort of father. Now, what does that mean? Well, first, don't be an exacting father. This is the man who demands that which a child cannot give. He expects more than they are capable of doing. Yes, we should absolutely push our children towards excellence. I do think there's a mediocrity that's common in our society. But remember, they are children. And they are fallen children. Uh, remember the weakness of their frame. Uh, demanding perfection is discouraging. It is embittering. Think of the great mercy and grace of God. Think of how patient he is towards us. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. If you are to properly image the fatherhood of God to your children, we could read this, but you, O oh dad, are a father merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant, loving kindness and truth. 
Is that what you aspire to be? You should. You should go after it. God is slow to anger, and his patience is abundant. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 25. And the Lord's servants, this is speaking to pastors, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. Now, if this is true of pastors, it is equally true of fathers. And if this is true of enemies, all the more is it true of the members of your own household, that you should be patient. A quarrelsome, exacting father will nitpick a kid until he is a shell of a person. That is what he will do. He will drain him of all courage. Men meditate on God's patience love, uh, his patient love towards you. And then let 1 Peter 4, 8 guide your father. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Second, don't be a fault-finding father. Fault-finding involves continual and usually trivial criticism. Now, this is similar to being exacting. I parse it out because I think there are some fathers who compete with their children. I've seen this. They want to prove like they're the big man. (laughs) Of course you are. They're kids. Like, I can beat up almost all the kids in this church. Some of you are getting kind of big, right? Uh, I remember Andy Kaufman always saying he could beat any woman in wrestling back in the 70s. Like, there's some guys that they, they're competing with their kids. They're talking down to them. They're trying to prove that they're awesome or whatever. They're always trying to prop themselves up as a perfect example of righteousness. And they do this by pointing out any and all shortcomings in their children. Maybe you've seen a movie that has some sort of, you know, drill sergeant that his whole, I think of this was Sobel and uh, Band of Brothers, when they go through um, uh, the barracks and find any little thing wrong. There's like a little dust on someone's clothes. They like, they rip it down and say, you got to do it all over again. And so fault-finding father who's attracted to finding all the things wrong with their kids. And this is the way of a deluded legalist and Pharisee. It'll beat the life out of children. Instead, train yourself to point out and celebrate your children's victories, even if they're small, and be quick to confess your sins. If your kids see you fault-finding with yourself, first, like, think of this, like, get the plank out of your eye. That's a command of Jesus. Just because liberals abuse that to silence us, it's still a command. You still have to do it. The, the wrong use of something doesn't invalidate the right use of it. And when your children see you willing to admit, son, I lost my temper. I shouldn't have done that. Or son, I shouldn't have talked to your mom that way. Or son, I shouldn't have said that to that guy when he cut us off in the road. He's a terrible driver, but it was wrong, right? When you are the sort of man that is quick to confess his sins in front of your children, you train them to do the same thing. You train them to be the sort of people that have the strength to admit that they're sinners and they need grace. You teach them that all life is repentance And you teach them that you'll never regret humility. You will never regret being humble in your entire life. Someone will say, well, this one time, they're wrong. Third, do not be a fickle father. I like the word fickle. Bring it back. It means changeable. All right? Always changing. God is constant and consistent. He is unchanging in his ways, attributes, and requirements. We aren't God, uh, but he is our example. There are some men who are always changing, always changing. Fickle, fickle, fickle. I say, I say that's how we would 
really define the entire mood of the moment. People are jumping from church to church. Now, there's a time to leave a church. That's leaving a church. That's not jumping from church to church to church to church. They change their theological position. They're this, they're that. They're always moving around. I, I, I've known kids like, I don't know what I am. We used to be this, and now we're that. And I think I, you know, I don't know. But they're also shifting their expectations in house rules all the time. This day is family night. No, now this day is family night. You're not allowed to do this, but now you are allowed to do this. They're always changing. Kids can't keep up with who they are or what's expected of them. It's incredibly discouraging. It's hard to get any momentum and stability. Doug Wilson, he has many helpful things to say about fatherhood and parenting in general. In his book, Why Children Matter, he gives four principles of discipline. It's a short little book. It's, I think it's free on Canon Plus if you have that. Um, his second principle is make sure that you, you discipline not with many rules, but with a few principles. He quips, you are a parent, not a regulatory agency, right? Uh, he said, I thought it was, he said his dad had three rules. Uh, don't disobey, no lying, and don't disrespect your mother. And then he says, what's not covered by that? It's kind of hard to think of anything. Those are three good rules. And uh, he says, you ought to think in terms of keep it simple, keep it straightforward. God has given us the Bible, and you can reduce the Old Testament law to 10 requirements that you can fit onto an index card. You always think of that? People always talk about how legalistic the Old Testament is. Have you seen, like, any part of American law, like the tax code, right? And, and so you have the Ten Commandments, and you got about 316 case laws. And those Ten Commandments can be further reduced down to just two. Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength your neighbor as yourself, right? Think of the example we have in Scripture, the example we have in Father God, which is very simple, very straightforward expectations. It's easier to be consistent when you keep it simple. Sometimes we can't even remember our own rules. I like to standardize my punishments as opposed to like, you're granted a week. I don't care. Well, you're granted two weeks. I don't care. You're granted a whole summer. You're not going to enforce that. You're not going to enforce it the whole summer. At least I don't. Maybe you're awesome, and you can do that. But I think a lot of times we just don't have any control, and, and actually the kid does care, and he's going to get really mad, and you're, just, you're trying to get a, a certain uh, emotional reaction out of them is what you're after. But it's easier to be consistent if you keep it simple. Have a few principles. Make sure that the kids understand them, and then consistently call them to apply them. Right? Reiterate them over and over again. Uh, there are other ways to provoke your children to anger and discouragement. There's many other ways, but I think those are enough to get us started, okay? So don't be a fault-finding uh, father. Don't be exacting, and don't be fickle. Be consistent. Care about the big picture. Teach them the big principles. Hold them accountable. Now let's look at the do in this verse. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are called to discipline and instruct our children in the, uh, in the Lord. That is the central work of fatherhood. The central work of fatherhood isn't making sure that they're academically on, uh, like awesome, though that could be a manifestation of this, and it's not to make sure that they live out your dream of being the football player that you almost were, right? You could throw a, a football over that mountain or whatever. Um, it's not your job to do that. Your key job, you do a good job if you discipline and instruct them in the Lord. 
Calvin, he points out that the Greek phrase translated bring them up in the Lord means to let them be fondly cherished. He says it's unquestionably or it unquestionably conveys the idea of gentleness and forbearance. So to bring them up in the Lord means to, to fond, be fond of your children, to cherish them, to love them. Sometimes people think the reformers and the Puritans had a real austere, hard way with their children. No, they did not. Not at all. Now, first and foremost, a father's discipline must be benevolent. He must be a gentleman who cherishes his children. And this is a long quote from J.C. Ryle from his duties of parents, but it's so powerful I want to read it in its entirety. Nothing will compensate for the absence of this tenderness and love. A minister may speak the truth as it is in Jesus, clearly, forcibly, unanswerably, but if he does not speak it in love, few souls will be won. Just so you must set, just so must, excuse me, just so you must set before your children their duty, command, threaten, punish, reason. But if affection be lacking in your treatment, your labor will be all in vain. Love is one grand secret of successful training. Anger and harshness may frighten, but they will not persuade the child that you are right. If he sees you often out of temper, you will soon cease to have his respect. Try hard to keep up a hold of your child's affections. It is a dangerous thing to make your children afraid of you. Anything is almost better than reserve and constraint between your child and yourself, and this will come in with fear. Fear puts an end to openness of manner. Fear leads to concealment. Fear sows the seed of much hypocrisy and leads to many a lie. There is a mine of truth in the apostle's word to the Colossians. Fathers, provoke not your children anger, lest they be discouraged. Let not the advice it contains be overlooked. Tenderness, charity, all those things. Those things aren't effeminate. There's nothing effeminate about that, right? The sternness in these things can go together. You, you need to cultivate a love for your children, I think in our culture that means they need lots of they need a lot of physical touch, a lot of hugs. Your son needs a hug, a pat, a slap on the back. Good job. Get at it, boy. Come here. You're ugly, but I love you. Right? You hug him. Right? You do things like that. You be a man, darling. You're beautiful on the outside. Stay beautiful on the inside too. Right? There's nothing more glorious than a gentle and quiet spirit. Right? Outside beauty perishes, but if you have that, it'll last forever and ever. Always look for ways to encourage them, praise them. If you want courageous children, you have to be an encourager. That's what the word means, to give courage. You have to encourage them. The amount of encouragement that I think people need now is off the charts. It's a very discouraging time. Calvin points out, to guard them, however, against the opposite in frequent evil of excessive indulgence, Paul again draws the rein which he has slackened and adds in the instruction and reproof of the Lord. It is not the will of God that parents in the exercise of kindness shall spare and corrupt their children. Let their conduct towards their children be at once mild and considerate so as to guide them in the fear of the Lord and correct them as them also when they go astray. You'll see people play these things against each other that being considerate and tender somehow goes against uh, actually instructing and disciplining them. They don't. They're, they go together. They fit. They're hand and glove. Again, discipline isn't punishment, at least not in a modern sense. 
Punishment is only concerned with retribution, right? We're not, we're not dealing with this in the sense of a judge. Biblical discipline, as we discussed last week, is corrective. It's a means of bringing the kids back in line with the word of God, which is why uh, it's key that we discipline and instruct them in the Lord. We must instruct our children. We must disciple them into the word. They need to know God's word. They need to understand these things. One of the best pictures of what biblical discipleship looks like is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. It's a total life discipleship. It's, it's an aroma. It's a room in your home. It's, it's, the, it's the fiber of your relationship. It's happening all the time. It involves your uh, example. It involves your actual teaching. It's the whole thing. That's what biblical discipleship is. So you have to, it's, it's, it happens here in church. It happens here at home. It happens on vacations. Kids learn all sorts of things about everything on vacation. Uh, so, but biblical discipleship definitely um, involves your example. Teaching according to biblical principles involves both instruction and example. Instruction provides meaning to our example, while our example, if not hypocritical, lends credibility to our instruction. If we solely lead by example, we leave those under our care to draw their own conclusions about our motives. If you don't tell people why you're doing something, they'll fill in the blank for you. They'll do it. It's crazy how people can misread your motives, right? Sometimes kids don't understand you did something because you love them. So you, you might need to tell them that. If we solely lead by example, um, excuse me, uh, conversely, if we only provide instruction, we undermine the power of our teaching with the reality of our actions. This is why Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, like Christ, proclaims uh, and demonstrates the truth of God. Christians are meant to be uh, to both hear and put into practice the, t- the teaching of God's word. It's easier to follow what we hear when we are guided by godly examples. We want uh, to see these realities in people. So Paul says, it's not just what I say, but what you've heard and seen in my whole life. That demonstrates uh, what we are to be. That's how we teach. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, for if you were to ha- uh, have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, be imitators of me. So when he's talking about this total discipleship, not just being a lecturer, not just being an instructor, but actually being a full discipleship, he uses father, fatherhood as a way to explain that. Children naturally imitate their father. This is a framework through which Paul views Christian discipleship. It's not solely confined to classroom instruction or around the dinner table. Rather, it encompasses life-on-life interaction and living together with a central focus on the public teaching of the word. If you find yourself dissatisfied with the behavior and attitude of those under your care, it is important to first consider whether these issues stem from you setting a poor example. 
The principle applies to pastors and leaders and certainly parents. While it might not always be the case, our children have a sin nature. They can make terrible decisions. It is often true that those under your leadership are simply reflecting your own example. If this is indeed the case, you can guide them towards repentance by first repenting of any ungodly behavior and attitudes within yourself. When you see something wrong in your kids, take a moment to reflect and pray. God, show me, how are they picking this up from us? Where is this in my life? Where can I repent of it? How can I I change uh, in this area? Now, if if it's not to be found, then where, where are they learning this? Is it just bringing from an evil heart? a heart that uh, still um, has foolishness in it that needs to be driven out. Uh, maybe, maybe it's neighborhood kids or whatever, but always start with yourself. And that's because that's the easiest thing to control in your life, right? I can't leverage power to control other people, but I can discipline myself. Be what you're calling your children to be. Are you what you want your children to be? They're going to be a whole lot like you. They're going to be a whole lot like you. Now, that being said, the word instruction, it means verbal instruction. It literally means the place before the mind. So you must actually teach your kids with words. You have to instruct them. You must educate them. And this should happen both formally and informally. Formally, there's two main ways I see this happening uh, that fathers can do this. Uh, first, uh, I think we're there's an implication of family devotions in, De- in Deuteronomy 6. And uh, so in our, and this can take a lot of different forms. In our home, uh, it used to happen around the breakfast table and it was very short, 10 to 15 minutes. I try to pick a historical part of scripture. They're a little easier to go through with kids. You know, so Genesis or a gospel or something, read a, a chunk of it and then say, what st- sticks out to you guys? What do you think? What's on your mind? Of course, a kid says something really crazy that has nothing to do with it. And you're like, okay, anyone else? And you move on. And then you you make a couple comments on it, and you interact with the kids. And then you maybe you sing a psalm or whatever, and then you pray together, and that's it. If you do that several days a week consistently, breakfast, dinner, whenever, whenever you can be consistent, you will see amazing things happen in your kids. Because then Scripture just kind of becomes part of life. And then they see you teaching it and seeing you interact with it. And I think a lot of times people overdo it when it comes to family devotions. They try to kind of recreate an entire uh, worship service. And I've mentioned this before, but a couple years ago, I remember people laying out their liturgy for their their family devotions. They're like, what's your liturgy? Uh, We read the Bible. We chat. We pray. That's it. Maybe go play Mario Kart afterwards, you know. I mean... That's what it is, just being stable three to five days, even a week. Just start somewhere and stick to it. But teach your kids the word, so do that formally. The other one is, uh, to the best of your ability, give your kids a Christian education. To the best of your ability, okay? So uh, I think homeschool and, and private Christian education is to be preferred to a high level over public schools. Once upon a time, in my public school, when I was a kid, we still prayed to God. We really did. I got spanked by my principal. That's ha- that, that happened in rural Indiana in the 80s, okay? And, uh, but still, is there sort of a Christian understanding? And I, uh, there, no doubt that we weren't being taught the sort of hogwash the kids are being taught today. Things have gotten intense. 
right? Public schools have increasingly become the proselytization arm of the state religion, right? Which is government grants you rights, not that government protects the rights that God gave you, right? And now some of you might not be able to, you know, have the money to do private uh, Christian education. Maybe you're new to the Lord or new to these convictions, and you're not ready to jump right away into homeschooling. Uh, and so you're in a situation where your children are in public schools for a time. My advice to you is to be deeply involved in their homework, deeply involved. If you can't get out of it, interact with their assignments, read it, like talk to them about everything, be a counterpoint to the whole thing, and then to the best of your ability, transition away from that. Um, there's there's homeschool co-ops. There's lots of options. There's a lot of people that do different things here. We don't um, limit Christian education to one method at this church. There's lots of methods you'll find. Talk to the people at the church. Work through it. Get some advice from the elders. But we do have a uh, responsibility to the best of our ability to give our, uh, our kids a Christian education. Now, think of this. Dads can actually send their kids. Here's a controversial take. You ready for one? Um, if the dad is actively involved, he has a kid that's going to public school, and he's like, all right, let's go over your homework. Let's talk all. Like, no, that's not what Scripture says. Here's what it is, and here's a counterpoint, and consider this and all that, and working hand-in-hand hand with his kid. That dad, I think, is doing a better job if you're a dad that doesn't check off, check off anything and just sends your kids to a Christian public school and says they got it, right? I, I don't think that's what this, this uh, text is teaching. It's teaching that the dad has to get involved and that we're not to transfer this duty over to their mother alone. That doesn't mean the mother is not involved, but that means the dad is checking in on the education. Early on, I certainly wasn't strong in this. Emily was the passionate one on Charlotte Mason and all that. But the more I've, uh, as I've aged, I've seen like that's the mistake. Dad has to be intimately involved. So get intimately involved as much as you can, Dad. And it's okay. I can't teach my kids calculus. I can't teach them algebra anymore. I forgot all that stuff. I used to forget that stuff over summer vacation. You know, like over summer vacation, you come back to algebra two. I don't remember algebra one. And so you, it's okay to outsource some of those things to other people. But the main thing is that Dad is involved as much as he can. So take whatever steps you can to get involved in that. Family devotions, giving the best Christian education that you can. Now, informally, think of Jesus. Think of how he taught the disciples along the road. Like there, there'd be something, here's a fig, fig tree. I'm going to teach you something. This would happen, that would happen. And he would use it as an example. He discipled all, through all of life. And so if you see a movie together and, uh, you know, you talk about it, you talk about its premise, and say, like, what do you guys think? What's, what's, what is the gospel this movie is preaching? What's the truth it's teaching? What's your takeaway? And then interact with it. If you watch a TV show or whatever, if you uh, see an ambulance and someone's wrecked on the side of the car or the side of the road in a car, you, you take a moment and you pray for them, right? You just use all these examples that God gives you just to chat that the word of God is always on your lip, always on your mind. You're just taking a full advantage of, of those opportunities as they come your way. So we should always be informally teaching our kids. And again, you can do devotions, you know, three, or five, three to five times a week or every, every day, uh, but you still have to have that life-on-life -life interaction with your kids. So those are some of the more memorable moments that your kids will have. Life, God gives you illustrations to help your kids understand. So, 
instruct your kids, discipline your kids, let them know what's required of them, and be sweet, be charitable, and hold them to those few rules, to those principles. You as a dad need to be stern, right? You need to hold your ground. And you can't fly off, uh, you can't fly off the, um, you can't lose your temper at any, any moment and explode. What your kids need to see is that you're cool, calm, and control. That's what we see in God. It doesn't mean that you don't have anger. That's what we see in Jesus. Jesus did flip over tables twice. People act like, like he's just walking around and he sees a table. He flips it over, right? That's like all he does. Uh, he's very, uh, very much in control. And when your kids say, no, I'm not going to do that, you say, oh, yeah, you are. It's going to happen, right? If not, there's going to be consequences. And you enforce those consequences, right? That is one of the biggest blessings you can give your wife is when you come home and you find out that, that someone's, you know, not been listening to mom and disrespecting mom, you say, come here, we got to talk about this. And you enforce it. You hold them to it. We do need men that will stand on principles and hold on, uh, hold, say, that's a line. You may not cross that. That's where we've gone so wrong in, in our churches is that we have all these people that will whine when you teach the truth of Scripture. And then pastors will bow down to them. You know where that started? That started in households where mom and dad didn't say, no, you're wrong. Yes, you will do it. If you don't, there'll be consequences. And uh, I can outweigh you. I can outweigh you. I, I can do this all night, son, right? However long it takes, because I love you. And you can be kind, but you have to be strong and stick to it. And fatherhood is a work of a lifetime. So usually when we talk about this, we think about it in the context of small children, but it is going to be the work of your lifetime. And it's easy to look back where you've messed up and, and, and feel condemned and, and be depressed. But I would say, uh, look to how kind God is and how he can redeem the years that the locusts, you know, ate. He can give them back to you. And so think of life, uh, your fatherhood as, uh, you know, your entire lifetime. It's a great privilege to be a father. And remember that God works through fallen men to do great things. Uh, what your children need isn't a perfect dad. You don't need to be the perfect dad. What they need is an honest dad who repents of his sin, loves God, and does what he can to show an example that they should follow. So go after that. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you so much for your word that it calls us uh, to not uh, make excuses, to make no provision for the flesh. Lord, we must not be the sort of man that lacks self-control and provokes our children to bitterness, to discouragement, to anger, and even rage. And yet you, you call us, on the other hand, Lord, to be the sort of man uh, who, out of his love for you, instructs and dis, uh, disciplines his kids. God, help us to cling to you, God. Help us to be an example of what a Christian looks like. Lord, we pray again that you would strengthen all the men in this church to be godly fathers. We pray that our homes would be a little colony of heaven, a little foretaste of what's to come. And to those of us, Lord, that feel clueless, uh, help us uh, today, Lord, to see a step, a single step to take in pursuing uh, what you call us to. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.